0: You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we are going to continue our series on the biblical origin of humanity. We'll have one more lesson after this, and I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, We are looking at our shared world history. I've titled this lesson, Uncovering Our Shared World History history. And this has pretty deep ties into what we talked about last week. We will not address any of the same kind of information. But what we saw last week was that humanity uh, is, in the grand scheme of things, is not really evolving. Rather, it's devolving. In the beginning, uh, everything was perfect. Now, we did not have the electronical and the, ele- the, the, the technologies, okay, the electronics and the technologies and such like that, um, that we have today. And often we falsely associate that with progress and, and, uh, technological advancement and such, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, what we actually find is that we have to build complex machines to accomplish today. And in many cases, we are not able to build the uh, seemingly necessary kind of equipment today that was used to do some of the things that folks could do in the past. And when we look at history from an evolutionary perspective, that really doesn't make any sense. We, we, We shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, have any uh, questions about how things have been done in the past, and we certainly should not have the issue of not being able to duplicate or reproduce uh, some of these things if our society is advancing and 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 quote evolving. We're actually devolving. We're actually going down. Is is what we find, and now when we see that, we see that it's consistent with what the Bible teaches about reality. Because the Bible teaches that in the beginning, God made everything, and it was very good. When he got done with his creation, including his creation of man, which was God's ultimate, very good creation, what we find is that humanity was living much longer back then. We found that Even in the earliest chapters of Genesis, they were very skilled. They had knowledge of how to even make musical instruments and such. They could build uh, cities and civilizations. They could farm. Uh, People from the beginning of time have not been uh, brutes, have not been cavemen in the same sense that evolutionists mean the term. So when we're looking at this shared history that we have, uh, we now... Take this one step further. So it does appear that humanity has been devolving throughout time. But now what we want to look at is how are we similar to some other cultures around the world? Uh, of course, we realize that if you're here, I mean, I'm here in North America, so I, I, I of course. Uh, have a lot of listeners that are in many different places throughout the world, but, uh, you know, and I think that's awesome. I think technology gives us that ability, and that's that's a really neat thing. Um, and so together, I think we should just, uh, you know, collectively thank God for this. We should thank God for the ability that now we can um, communicate across vast um, geological or, or geographical, excuse me, uh, distances. Um we can reflect on this thing together. We can, uh, we can learn multiple languages. We can understand each other. But the reality is that we all have a shared history. If the Bible's true, and we're all created uh, as one race, as 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 has been the common thread of what we've been looking at really throughout this whole uh, series, then we're all in this together. We all have a a shared history, and of course that shared history is brought together in the ultimate uh, culmination in heaven by our shared future that we have as we place our trust in Christ. See, everything about the historical veracity and the historical details in the creation account and in the early chapters of, of Genesis all the way throughout the Bible is this unifying thread. It's this story arc. It's this this way of looking at reality where everything started out good and everything's really, really bad right now, but the resolution is coming. By the way, uh, this same story arc sells millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in box office tickets because you can find this exact um, everything's good uh, something bad happens, somebody comes in and saves the day. Um, you, you, that's the essential building blocks for most movies, most TV shows. Um, it's interesting that almost everything that we desire for in, in our human existence is actually echoed by the history uh, found in the Bible and, of course, the future that we can expect if we place our trust in Christ. And so uh, this, this way of looking at reality stands in stark contrast to the reality that exists in a naturalistic, uh, philosophical, naturalism, evolutionary, Darwinist worldview, whatever you want to call it. We're, we're, it's just simply different. So as we begin to explore this, what we really want to do is look at the common threads that tie each world, culture, and society together. We're looking at our shared history. I want to give you a couple things um, before we dive right into that, and uh, first of all, I want to mention again the Creation Academy, the Creation Academy. Of course, you know you're listening to the Creation Academy, but this is our podcast. Um, We are working on building this website. Uh, You can go to jointca.co, jointca.co to get signed up, and um, what? Uh, we've got over there is we are building a very, uh, very almost controversially uh, affordable um, experience. And I don't want to, you know, get into all the details here because that's not really the purpose of this podcast. But if you go over there, Read what we've written over there. Uh, it's just a page that kind of describes to you what we're doing uh, as the Creation Academy, and we're putting together these videos and uh, and this whole training, these courses, and 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 it's man, it's going to be awesome. Um, go over there, take a look, get signed up for the waitlist. You can't sign up uh, to be in the program. Uh, right now okay because it's not going to launch until sometime early next year we're hoping January Uh, hoping January but I don't know that we're going to be quite ready to launch um, right then but but nevertheless early 2019 uh, is definitely what we're shooting for as far as having this thing live where you could go ahead and sign up but for now you can go ahead and put your name on the waitlist, and let me encourage you to do it because I'm going to let you into something here that I, I, you know, normally I wouldn't just uh, say these kinds of things because uh, one of my mentors in life and in and in business once told me that if you tell everybody your business, you just don't have any, <laughs> uh, and and I have seen that to be true uh, in my experience. But at the same time, this is something that I want you to know. I do not plan to make an attempt to actually launch this thing until I get 500 names on the wait list. So I'm not trying to bribe you, but if you read it and it's something that you even remotely think that you are going to be interested in doing, I want you to put your name in on the wait list. Now I'm going to give you something. Okay. You don't have to do it just for nothing. Um, but I do want you to go over there and do that because I want to see that that, that, that wait list build up. I want to see that there's interest, okay? Something um, very important, and if you own a business, if you manage a business, if you've ever done so, you realize this, if you don't have customers, you don't have a business. That's a pretty important thing, and so we're going to spend a lot of time and money here on our end putting this thing together, and that's fine. I want to do that. Um, but it's going to require some interest. Somebody is going to have to want this thing. Somebody is going to have to want what we're offering in order for us to offer. And if it just, uh, if we find out that people just simply don't want what we're offering, um, then we're not going to do it. Uh, you know, and honestly, that's the bottom line because it won't make any sense to do it. If nobody's going to get any value or any benefit from it, we're just not going to do it. So if you want to see this happen at all, please go get on the wait list. I'm not going to send you a ton of emails. I promise. Um, I may email you every once in a while, but I, I, but I have yet, uh, since I announced this, which has been weeks ago, I have yet to send one email to that wait list. It's growing, slowly but steadily, and I'm, I'm thankful for that, but but what I want you to do is get on there so that other people can experience this. Um, if you don't want it, sign up anyway for, for, for the benefit of somebody else, for the benefit of of, of of getting this information out there to as many people as possible so that we can teach about God's Creation, all right. And remember, the Creation Academy is not uh, um, uh, not necessarily about tearing up uh, op- opposing worldviews down. Um, we do, of course, by nature of what we talk about, we do have to address these things sometimes. Evolutionism, theistic evolutionism, uh, even old age creationism—we have to encounter these things and confront them sometimes. But largely, what we aim to do uh, in this podcast, but especially with the Creation Academy website. Um, is going to be to build up the positive case for creationism. We, I, I, I think, many have done a great job soundly refuting evolution and and, and, and other alternative theories, and and uh, I, I I certainly believe that they've done that. That's not our role. in in the in the long run. That's not our our contribution. We have decided going into this that that our specific contribution to Creation ministry is to going to be to help to get some of the scientific models and some of the current theories and some of the best thoughts on creationism to the masses in a way that everybody can understand and everybody can use when they're witnessing and talking to people about spiritual things. So that's what our goal is. So so help us accomplish that. Put your name on the wait list. Share it with others. When you do that, we're going to give you exclusive access to our Facebook group. Now, that might not sound too special to you. Right now, it's not very special, just being honest, but it will be. Um, I plan on having Uh, different instructors that help out in the academy. I plan on having some creation scientists in there. Uh, I plan on that group being a great moderated place where you can go to uh, be able to ask questions of others uh, and of professionals in the industry and learn how to really deal with these issues, learn how to respond to objections. There are great Facebook groups out there right now for young earth creationists. This is not just another young earth creationist Facebook group. That's not what this is about. This is for... Academy members only to, to go in and to be able to um, uh, ask important questions and get advice on how to answer others. Um, however... I have decided that as a perk for uh, giving us your information to get onto the wait list, you're going to get access to that Facebook group, and you'll have lifetime access as far as I'm concerned. You'll never have to pay for it. I, that will be a paid feature. As soon as the Creation Academy goes live, the wait list is shut down. Nobody else gets in, but for now, you can get in there for free. Help contribute your ideas. You can help us build the Creation Academy. Well, in did plan on spending that much time on it, but it's important. We're excited about this. We want to see this vision uh, come to the press, so to speak, and uh, and we can't do it without your help. So that's one thing. Uh, secondly, I'll just mention real quick, we have started... Um As a ministry, putting out some videos. Uh, Now, these are just quick videos. These are, I I might be, you know, they're not too formal. I do have music playing in the background, but we're on YouTube, okay? Um, I I might be in my car. I might be sitting at my kitchen table, (laughs) you know, something like that. It's very informal. These are not high production value videos, nor are they meant to be, nor are they specific to creationism. Uh, These are Associated with my uh, website, which is www.steveshram.com. we'll place a link in the show notes to the, the link where you can see some of the videos. Okay, um, but these these um, these videos are going to be out there uh, to help answer short questions. They're less than ten minutes, um, if at all possible, each. Ultimately, I would really like for them to be between 5 and 10, but sometimes I, I wax eloquent and get a little long-winded, and I guess that's the Baptist preacher in me. I just can't help it, but uh, at the same time, I, I, I think these are going to be short, helpful videos, and this is not always the case, but my, kind of my common thread behind creating these videos is to help you give better answers help you give better answers. And so the videos are short. So obviously I don't have time in any video to go like deep into the type of evidence that is out there for a proposition. Um, but again, the point is not to do that. Um, they are just very short videos that are meant to help, uh, encourage you and to answer specific questions. Um, for example, um, a couple of the videos I've put out so far are uh, Good Evidence for Evolution, um, Answering Abortion, uh, The SLED Test, Blessed by Whom, um, Are Some Sins Worse Than Others, The Significance of a Personal Creator. Uh, I've got five videos out there. Those are the five I've got out there uh, so far. Um and so these are just short videos to help you um, in your defense of the faith. So I hope you will go check those out on the steveshram.com uh, website. That's where we, uh, of course, do our writing and such on the general apologetics material. And our podcast and the Creation Academy website are focused uh, pretty much exclusively on uh, defending young age creationism, as you already know. So I want you to go check out those opportunities, okay? Uh, we're, we're trying to put out a lot of information for free. Um we are going to be charging for the Creation Academy website, just six ninety nine per month. I mean, it's a steal six ninety nine per month. Uh, I think we can charge that modestly because we're not some huge corporation. We don't have large bills to pay. We don't have a building uh, to to buy. I still have a job. You know what I mean? Like I'm, um, um. But we do feel like we need to charge for this because we don't. We're not made of money. Okay. Um. I I, I want to be able to produce videos with a high production value. That is something that Young Earth Creationism is largely missing. And I want for you to be able to access these high production value videos anytime. And I think we're going to have to charge a little bit to get the money to be able to do that. And so that's why we're charging $6.99 per month. But really, I mean, if it ends up that we uh, get to make a living doing this one day, that's great. The idea right now, though, is just for it to be able to pay for itself, okay? Um, That's all we want. So we think that your contribution of $6.99 is a reasonable ask on our part, and that we think that for that, we're going to actually be able to provide some solid video content. The kind of video content that young age creationists um, can be proud of. And so that's what we're going to be putting out there for you. All right. This chapter in our book, by the way, it's chapter number 15 as we continue on here, uncovering our uh, shared world history. Um, this chapter was written by Tim Chaffee. Tim Chaffee. I'm not exactly sure how he says that. Um, he is with Answers in Genesis. He's actually got an MDiv. Um specializes um, in apologetics and theology, and uh, he's got a THM in church history and theology from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. He holds also a BS and an MA in biblical and theological studies. Now, Tim is the content manager for the Attractions Division uh, of Answers in Genesis. He's responsible for um, developing the teaching content, for example, in the Ark Encounter. So, uh... Tim is, is well-versed in, in these areas, especially this area of our shared world history because of, no doubt, the vast amount of research that he had to do personally as well as, I'm sure, the teams that he led um, in putting together all of the content. I mean, he manages the content, as far as I know, for the, for the Ark Encounter and for the Creation Museum. It's a pretty, uh, pretty big job, and he is over all of that. So I think he's got a pretty good handle on these things. Now he starts out, and uh, a lot of this, by the way, it was a short chapter. This was a short chapter. I did have to skip some things. Uh, but a lot of what I have here is going to be direct quotes from him. And uh, honestly, the reason I did that is is he is um he, he he's really worded these things quite concisely. Uh, he's given the best short summary that I can possibly think to give about many of these things, even though you could go more detail. His short summary has been great. Uh, and so for me to just rewrite that would simply be me, me rewording it um, for no apparent reason. So I'm just going to use his words um, in many cases here. Uh, I'm going to give him the credit. Uh, you know what I mean? This is his work. This is this is Tim Chaffee's work. Um, Tim Chaffee's work. Again, I don't know how to say his last name, but but this is Tim's work, okay? So I'm going to give him the credit and the benefit for this Um And we're going to go from there. So he opens up um, by giving us this this overview. He says that if the uh, the events of Genesis 1 through 11 uh, truly occurred, as Scripture clearly indicates that they did, it would mean that from the flood until the confusion of languages at Babel, mankind possessed a common history. Many of these people, particularly in the first few generations, would have almost certainly learned from Noah's family about the major events prior to the flood. After scattering from Babel, the various people groups experienced their own unique histories. Given these facts, we should be able to expect uh, to find echoes of the major events of Genesis 1-11 through 11 in the traditions and legends of people groups all over the world. Therefore, it is no surprise to Bible-believing Christians that anthropo- uh, excuse me, anthropological studies have uncovered an array of non-Israelite stories, at least partially consistent with the Bible's earliest chapters. The most common of these legends centers on the Great Deluge, or Flood, of course, but it is not uncommon to hear tales reminiscent of the Bible's account of creation, the fall, the Tower of Babel, and more. So he lays out this overview of world history. Now, let's be honest. Let's be clear about something up front. Not everybody's um, world history looks like this, okay? Um, There are um, difficulties here. And what I mean by that is one of the most common objections you get to, for instance, the occurrence of the biblical flood is things like the pyramids in Egypt. Um, Things like the American Indian tribes who were supposedly already here and survived all the way through the flood. Uh, Things like the Japanese, for example, they have records going back certain uh, dynasties and and such, and and one rightly asks the question, how come the Japanese didn't know about this flood? And I have seen explanations for these things, and I agree with many of them. Um, uh, Of course, uh, we realize that our ultimate source of truth here is the Bible. Um, we realize that the Bible really gives us the only um, logical source of, of knowledge, of, of knowing things, of epistemology, you might say. Um, the Bible explains that God, who was the creator, um, is our ultimate source for these things. All knowledge is found in Christ, for example. I believe that's Colossians 1.3. Um, so, we know that for many, many reasons, the biblical account is true. So what do we do with these outliers? Well, you just kind of have to take every situation and examine it on its own merits. Uh, and, and for instance, just to do this with, with Egypt, uh, for, for example, um, we know uh, because when we do a comparative history, if we look at the Bible's history and look at current Egyptian dating and chronology, things are off. But surprisingly, if you move things a couple of hundred years, you start to see something different. You start to see that the events of the Bible line up with events of archaeology and recorded Egyptian history. But the timelines are off. So what's the explanation there? Well, that just simply means that something in the Egyptian dating is wrong. What do you know? A secular dating method contradicts the Bible's account. Well, that's nothing new. We see that all the time. So we have to examine each one of these things on their own merits. I don't personally have an answer for every one of these things. I, I, you know, I'm willing to admit there's difficulties with, with what we believe. Now, of course, they can be explained. Some people online have done some great job. Uh, writing about this in, in different areas on different blogs and such. Um, I'm sure there are even some books about it. But, but look, this is one of these things that we could easily get hung up on, but we ought not to, all right? There are more important issues at stake. And while we realize that these... Um, world histories that contrast our problem, we have all these other world histories that seem to line up pretty good. So let's look at these, let's evaluate them, and um, and go from there. We deal with the difficulties as they arise. Yes, we admit there are difficulties. We, as Kurt Wise would say, we examine the worst version of the problem, and we move forward from there. Uh, if the Bible is true, then creationists can be honest in all of our assessments. That means we can even be honest when we don't have an immediate answer. There's no need to make something up in order to argue for your position and uh, we'll talk about that kind of thing an- another time i'm sure so uh for the evidence that we do have of a shared world history between these multiple different cultures um and these different parallels to the biblical accounts, such as in the creation and the fall and the flood and giants and the tower of babel and all of this there are two ways generally speaking of looking at this evidence just two ways Way number one is that these events actually happened. Somebody is recording the true history of it, and all the other myths and legends are merely bad renderings of a true story, of true history. This is one paradigm or one way of looking at the evidence. Now, of course, it should be no surprise what my position will be. That will be my Position and uh, just to give a very quick apologetic for why I would say that, I think if you examine the details of all these other accounts and then you examine the Bible's uh, recording of this account, I think it's plain to see that the Bible records historically um, speaking. In other words, the 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 Bible records history. The 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 kind of language that the Bible uses to describe the events are historical. Um, uh, renderings of this language, okay? So it, 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 it Genesis is not written in a mythological fashion. We dealt with that in earlier podcast episodes in this series, okay? Um, the other way of looking at it is that Genesis, along with the others, is simply a myth, simply one of these legends. But now, if that's the case, and we're going to look at this here in a minute, but now if that's the case, then we have got some explaining to do, <laughs> right? Uh, we're going to have to number one, uh, have an argument that is sound that could that could show that Genesis ought to be taken as myth or as legend or as allegory, which number one, that's going to be difficult to do. Um, I would say it's going to be impossible to do. But then, not only do you have to do that, which is nearly impossible, but then you have to go on the other end and say, well, what now explains the fact that we have all of these things. Now we have to come up with another explanation to explain why um, this similarity is is true in light of the fact that we're not acknowledging biblical history. Obviously, if somebody believes that this is a myth, um, in many regards they're not uh, acknowledging biblical history. That means they're acknowledging secular history. And now, in secular terms, you are going to have a very hard time explaining these similarities, as um, we will uh, look at. So let's just start at the beginning. Start at the creation. So uh, the Maori people of New Zealand and other uh, South Pacific islands have several creation myths. So one particular legend uh, explains that the god Tain has made a model of man from red clay. Sounding familiar? Yep. Then he uttered an incantation, and when he breathed on the figures, they came to life. When he breathed on this particular figure, the clay came to life. Now this man was named Tiki. His wife was Mary Carrico. Interestingly enough, other legends claim that Tiki was not the first man, but the creator of men. But of course, this was considered heretical because it denied that uh, Tain created man. The uh, spread of this heresy allegedly led to the flood that destroyed mankind. The Comanche people, the Great Plains region of the United States, tell a creation story that also has some interesting parallels. Of course, uh, they say that one day the Great Spirit took swirls of dust from the four directions and created the Comanche people. These people made of earth were very strong, But a shape-shifting demon started to torment the people. The Great Spirit threw the demon into a bottomless pit. To carry out revenge, the demon takes up residence in the fangs and stingers of poisonous animals to harm people at every opportunity. Certain groups now of Australian Aborigines tell a tale that echoes Genesis. Uh, The creator, uh, uh, Pungil, created a great knife to shape the work of his hands. He made two men from lumps of clay, quote, which he gradually fashioned from the feet upwards into uh, the human form, unquote. And then, quote, he breathed very hard on them, and they lived and began to move about as full-grown men, unquote. Now, Punjil's brother uh, controlled the waters and used the hook to draw out two young women who became the mates of the two men. So these are just a few examples of creation um, myths found across the world. Uh, what explains this? Well, again, uh, we're kind of building a cumulative case here, and this just is one, one, one block of the, of the case that we're building. But certainly there are parallels in these uh, accounts to the creation found in Genesis. And we, of course, expect this. Now, the fall, moving on. The well-known Greek myth uh, about Pandora has some interesting resemblances to the biblical account of this rebellion of man, or what we would call the fall of man. Now, according to um, Hesiod, Zeus ordered Hephaestus to create the first woman. Her beauty was to match that of the goddesses. Other gods gave her many gifts, which explains the origin of her name. Um, Pan means all, and Doron means gifted. Uh, But also led to her downfall, since the gifts of the gods were, quote, a plague to men, unquote. She was also given a jar, or a box in some versions, that held all the world's evils within. One day, Pandora opened up the great lid, and the evils escaped to fill the earth. Now you've heard of this before. This is known as Pandora's box, right? When somebody says they're opening up Pandora's box, uh, this has to do with the Greek myth about Pandora. But ultimately, it is a reflection on the fall of man. It is a a story or a myth that attempts to account for the rebellion of man. Um, this this innate. Knowledge that we all have that the world is broken and not as it should uh, be. And that's what this echoes. The aboriginal peoples from the Murray River of Australia convey a legend about death entering the world when the first man and woman disobeyed a specific instruction regarding a tree. They were told not to go near a certain tree in which a great bat, lived. One day, the woman was gathering firewood, came too close to the tree. The bat awoke and flew away. From that time on, human beings died. A surprising number of these ancient tales, uh, by the way, uh, there was also a Sumerian tablet that bears this out that we, I, I kind of skipped over, uh, but a surprising number of these ancient tales include serpents at the heart of their creation or their fall of man myth, um, often turning the biblical account on its head as the serpent is viewed as the source of wisdom to be worshipped. And that's something. So not only do the... Um, pagan accountings of history uh, echo these sentiments, but they also use elements of the story and turn the characters around and, uh, you know, make it so we're not the bad guys, so to speak. Now, of course, we know Satan the serpent is most certainly a bad guy. Um, The ultimate bad guy, really. However, we sin against God. That's not Satan's responsibility. It's not Satan's fault. That's our fault. We sinned against God. We told God that we wanted to be greater than him or even that we wanted to be equal with him. Nevertheless, there is no such thing. It can't happen. It can't be done. Um, we've been punished as a result. What about giants? This is another area. Ancient tales abound with legends of giants. They're often connected in some way with some sort of great flood. Unsurprisingly, the Bible also mentions these details. Now, Genesis 6-4 states that uh, the Nephilim, or giants, were on the earth um, in the days before the flood and also afterward. Now, the text adds that the Nephilim were around whenever the sons of God sired children with the daughters of men. And I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, anybody who's familiar with this, you know that there is a bunch of, um, I guess, I don't know that controversy is the right word, but a bunch of competing opinions and viewpoints as to what these sons of gods, uh, sons of God were. Um, the most convincing argument that I have seen is that they were simply evil men who had been. Um, um, taken over or were being controlled by some sort of fallen angels or demonic spirits. I don't believe, based on the wording in the text, I don't personally believe that they were actually fallen angels themselves that were um, mating with the uh, daughters of men here in this case. I believe they were actually real men giants, perhaps, who were taken over or being controlled by some sort of demonic influence. Um, I'm not dogmatic on that. That's the best I can get to um, with the research that I've done. That's what I believe that the evidence seems to bear out in the scripture. But uh, anyway, I don't want to go any further on that. Now, the Montagnies of the Hudson Bay region of Canada, for example, have a tale about giants in a flood. God was angry with the giants, so he commanded a man to build a large canoe. Once the man finished his boat and boarded it, the waters rose on all sides until no land could be seen, and all the giants were drowned. The man became tired of seeing nothing but water, so he threw an otter overboard, and the otter dove to the bottom and brought up some earth. The Incas of South America also spoke of giants prior to a Great Flood. Now, in their legend, Viracocha created the first race of humans. They were giants who lived in darkness for a period of time, but at some point, they angered uh, Viracaca or Viracacha. and Angry and disappointed with his creatures, Viracocha destroyed the world with a flood and transformed the giants to rocks. Now, what about the flood? Now, we talked... A little bit around that up to this point, but what about the actual flood itself? Now, there are um, between 300 and 500, at my last count, flood myths and legends uh, in different cultures throughout the world. This is by far um, the most widespread um, similarity um, as far as myths and legends go with other cultures. Now, we dealt with this pretty extensively in lesson number 10 we dealt with flood myths and legends in lesson number 10 and we are going to um, link you to the show notes on that one so that you can go back and listen to that if you so choose all right and um we go into much more detail um on that one here we're just going to mention two here of course probably the most popular of these is the epic of gilgamesh the epic of gilgamesh now uh It includes uh, what is probably the best known of extra-biblical flood myths. Um, Anybody who is intentionally trying to counter a historical flood with a flood myth is is almost without a doubt going to visit the Epic of Gilgamesh. So it would do you well to go and listen. And we dealt with this in much more detail, by the way, in the other lesson, lesson number 10, that we're going to hear. So familiarize yourself with this account and be able to refute um, the idea that the Epic of, Bil- uh, of Gilgamesh predated the flood. That's what they're going to say, and it's not true. So study up on that, how to deal with that. Now, um, the uh, 11th tablet okay, in this, in this epic contains a story remarkably similar to the Genesis account instructed by the god Ea, uh, Utnapishtim uh, builds and covers with a pitch-cubed, uh, excuse me, c- covers with pitch, a cubed shaped ark to save himself, his family, and the animals from a devastating flood that killed everyone outside the boat. On the 7th day, the ark lands on Mount Nisir. Utnapishtim releases a dove, swallow, and raven to check the water levels and eventually offers a sacrifice to the gods. The Aboriginal uh Wunambal tribe of Western Australia or the Wunambal tribe, I'm going to say it like that, of Western Australia holds a tradition with uh, many other similarities. Now, some children cruelly treated a bird that flew to heaven and complained to the creator and Furious at what had been done, and Gadja warned Gajara to build a double raft to survive a coming flood. Animals and food were packed on the raft, and the flood came, bringing the sea waters over the land. Eventually, the waters receded, and mountaintops were seen. Kajara sent out a, uh, cook, a cuckoo and then other birds. His wife, uh, Galgobiri, cooked a kangaroo. When Engaja smelled the pleasing scent, he put a rainbow in the sky as a promise that there would no longer be. Such a disastrous flood. What about moving into the Tower of Babel? And again, uh, I just gave you two, by the way, of three to five hundred flood myths and legends around the world. Uh, this is a remarkable, remarkable thing that is not explained well at all by any other Idea other than the fact that the Bible is true history. And we're going to look at some of the objections and deal with those individually here in just a minute. Now, Babel. Moving on to Babel. The Papago people of Arizona explained that after a flood, the Great Spirit and Montezuma restocked the earth with men and animals. Montezuma and Coyote taught and led the people. Later, Montezuma became prideful and brought evil into the world when he rebelled against the, quote, great mystery by... Uh, making the people build a many-storied home that kept growing taller and taller. The great mystery raised the sun higher in the sky, causing cooler temperatures and snow to warn the people, but they kept building. So the great mystery destroyed Montezuma's tower with an earthquake and changed the languages of the people so that they could no longer understand the animals or other tribes. Now, this is interesting. Biblical biblical creationists uh, generally believe that the conditions on Earth as a result of the flood would have triggered a single ice age that would have lasted for a few centuries. Is it possible that the cooling temperatures described in this legend are referring to those post-flood conditions? Now, that's something really to think about. Uh, uh, We're not going to go into all that here, but of course, creationists believe that there was a single ice age post-flood that did last for many centuries. Um... Uh, on the order of six to seven hundred years, I believe is the last number that I saw. You feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on that. But I believe we're somewhere between six to seven hundred years. Um, Dr. Uh, Michael Oard has a pretty uh, interesting flood model concept that that I find pretty compelling. Of course, um, the creationists who worked on the catastrophic plate tecton- uh, tectonic model, excuse me, have also. Um, <laughs> been working on some ice age theories, and so I, I appreciate those as well. Um, but ultimately what we don't see, what we don't um, have room for in the biblical account is this multiple ice ages over millions and millions of years. Um, that's, not, that's not what we actually have in the Bible account. So uh, we need to understand that we're looking at the world in one particular way, and it doesn't allow for these other things. So when we, when we see stories like this that seem to maybe suggest that there were cooler than expected temperatures associated with the time during the Tower of Babel, that, uh, that bears out what we believe to be true about the history of the world uh, from a scientific perspective. Now the Choctaw of the southern United States also tell a story that echoes the Babel account. The good spirit created many men. They were all Choctaw and understood one another because they all spoke the Choctaw language. The first people were formed from yellow clay. One day they wondered what the sky was like, so they decided to build a tower of rocks that would touch the heavens. Overnight, A strong wind blew and destroyed their efforts. They tried again, but their efforts were once again thwarted by a powerful wind. On the third attempt, the people slept next to the tower. The tower was blown over again, and the rocks landed on the people but did not kill them. When the people pushed the rocks away, they were surprised to discover that they could no longer understand each other because they no longer spoke the same language. So here we have these remarkable... Similarities in these in these accounts now dealing with languages. We could go a little bit further For instance the Chinese oracle bone writing provides an interesting uh, perspective on this like modern Chinese the oracle bone writing was uh, logographic meaning that instead of an alphabet it used symbols or um, radicals to represent words and syllables These figures can be combined to convey a different or more developed idea. Check this out. Now, researchers discovered that many of the radicals reveal that the earliest Chinese people clearly knew of the events found in Genesis 1 through 11. Consider these following words and symbols. Garden is made up of the symbols for dust, breath, two persons, and enclosure. Flood is composed of the figures for eight, united, earth and water. Tower consists of the radicals for mankind, one, mouth or language, grass and clay. I hope you're starting to see how this how these secular findings have merely served not to undermine the biblical account that we find in Scripture, Genesis one through eleven, but rather to underscore them, they place this exclamation part uh, point at, at the end of our at the end of our thought process here. They uh, they provide good cultural evidence for what we believe is the true history of the world. Combining these facts with uh, what we learned about last week, as we dealt with the idea that. Um, Mankind has not always has not started out as a primitive brute, uh, and then worked up to where we are today. We actually see the devolution in many ways of mankind. Uh, put along with that, we have a pretty concrete understanding of the world from our perspective, and it's bared out by what we have uh, seen and observed about history. Now, what about objections to these ideas? There are a few objections here that the author puts out. Um, and I'll be honest, I mean, we dealt with some of these objections as well in Lesson 10, the Flood episode. And um, it, 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 these objections just do not explain the evidence. I'm just going to tell you. They, they just really, really don't seem to explain the evidence. Now, there's only a few options, just, just a few. Um, one would be maybe coincidence. Perhaps it's a coincidence that uh, there are Flood myths and legends that echo each other. Perhaps it's just a, a, a strange, awful coincidence that That so many early cultures have myths and legends that echo these same kinds of events. Some uh, have suggested this, that they developed independently. Now, specific floods have, have been attributed as the source, okay, of particular myths. This has happened. Um... Considering this uh, following thought process. So tales from North America uh, were spawned by the flooding at the uh, end of the last ice age. This is, of course, given in secular dating at 13,000 B.C. Flood stories from parts of the Middle East and Europe were drawn from the controversial Black Sea flood. Okay, that was in 7400 B.C. The flooding of ancient Samaria was due to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers overflowing their banks during heavy rains in 2900 B.C. Now, this sounds good. This So, uh, so uh, in other words, the point we're making here is that maybe it just so happens that everybody in these different cultures around the world have these shared flood stories of local flooding, and they have then, um, because of this, we all have similar uh, renderings of this. Now, uh, this might seem convincing at first, but it lacks explanatory power. It can't explain widespread phenomenon. It can't ex- explain why why the details are so close, uh, cl- are so closely related uh, across these different myths and and in so many cultures. Uh, these similarities, you know, in in one or maybe five or maybe even ten cultures, okay, maybe, but three to five hundred, I don't think so. And it also doesn't explain why giants are associated in many cases. Now the author asks this, he says, Why do these legends frequently speak of a favored family instructed by a god to build a boat to survive the coming flood? And why do they regularly mention certain birds being sent to check on the post-flood conditions? These are very specific details that are not explained by this coincidence theory. How about Missionaries. Well, now there's two problems with this. Now, of course, we know the Great Commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, I am in in wild support of missions of missionaries. We we our church uh, supports 112 right now, um, and I, I, I would for our size church, I think that's a very large number. I happen to think, and, and God blesses our church for that. I believe uh, God really does work through. Um, through the generosity of, of many of our church members in this area. So I have a heart for missions. I have a passion for for those who, who are able to go do this. Um, but here are a couple problems with the idea that missionaries are somehow responsible for this idea of, of cultural flood legends. First of all, the vast differences that exist between the legends just make this quite implausible. Um, so while the similarities made uh, uh, kind of... Re- served to refute the idea of coincidence, now it's the differences that serve to refute the idea of missionaries. Why would a tribe drastically change the name of the Ark's Builder in a generation or two? For example, why would Noah's name become uh, Kat, uh Q-A-T, um, in the new Hebrides myth, uh, marijuana in the Guiana myth, uh, Uasu in the Brazilian, or Gajara uh, in the Australian myth, if missionaries had recently taught the people the Genesis account. Uh, The greater problem mentioned here is uh, that um, it just has to do with the purpose of mission work. What is the purpose of mission work? Why do men and women spend years raising support, uh, learning a foreign language, sometimes, in many cases, actually, even risking their lives and most certainly risking great persecution? Uh, Do they endure these hardships simply to teach an unreached people group? A severely distorted version of the Genesis flood. Of course not. No, they 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 dedicate their lives to reaching these people with the gospel of Christ. Um, And since that's the case, why do so many of these tribes with flood myths similar to the biblical account not know anything from Scripture following Genesis eleven? It just doesn't work. Uh, It's this this it's just preposterous. It's not a good explanatory uh, look at the evidence. Now, how about maybe the Genesis account just simply borrowed from some of these other ideas? And certainly, this is the idea that comes into play largely when people talk about the Gilgamesh epic. Critical Bible scholars often assume that Genesis was not completed until the time of the Babylonian captivity. So many have suggested that the Bible's flood account was inspired or borrowed from the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, which includes a flood story that is essentially a retelling of the older uh, Sumerian and Akkadian tales. But there's a problem with this, of course. Looking at it this way actually assumes, you have to assume the documentary hypothesis, the documentary hypothesis, which has been soundly refuted for a long time. Uh, and, and we won't go into what all the documentary um, hypothesis entails, but essentially uh, the claim here is that um, writing did not exist during the time of Moses, and so um, the the biblical accounts were, um, or the 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 first chapters of Genesis, especially, were not written indeed by Moses. Now, the nature of the ark is a is a critical difference here. All right, the cube shaped ark in Gilgamesh would remain afloat, that's true, but it would rock so badly from side to side that the people and animals likely would not survive. And with its seven levels, getting proper lighting and ventilation to the uh, uh, lower floors would be a major difficulty. On the other hand, the dimensions of Noah's Ark are an ideal blend for size, strength, and stability during the global catastrophe. Now, uh, so there's another thing. These differences... um, serve to underscore the fact that that Gilgamesh is merely a reflection of the real flood. The Bible uh, does not localize the flood, as many other uh, legends do. No, the Bible talks about a world covering flood. The Bible is concerned with much more than the Mesopotamian Valley, Okay, as many uh, old earth creationists would like to... Uh, put out there. Uh, I recently saw a video put out by one who basically said "Well, the flood doesn't matter to him. uh, People ask him what he believes about the flood and it doesn't matter. It could go either way. But you can't get the long ages that an old age view requires and uh, the the geological um, uh, data that we see from a worldwide covering flood, uh, it's either one or the other. You 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 either explain the evidence with a catastrophe or with the long ages. And um, of course, I'm not going to get into all this right now. But uh, the reality is that the catastrophe view, the global flood view, in many ways provides um, more explanatory power. Uh, and specifically in the area of plate tectonics. All right, uh, general plate tectonics theory explains a lot, but catastrophic plate tectonics theory that applied to the flood, explains about double what conventional plate tectonics does. It's it's absolutely incredible, all right? Uh, And I'll link you to a video here in the show notes that will allow you to see what I'm talking about there. Finally, uh, the Bible does not seem to dwell on the bizarre details as many other myths do. Uh, the Bible is a a, a a one unified message, right? It, it was written over, uh, you know, a period of about 1600 years, had 40 authors uh, across three continents, you know what I mean? Like the Bible is this uh, this document that has so many contributors over so much time, and yet, has one unified message from 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 the first chapter of from the first verse of the first chapter to the last verse of the last chapter, Jesus. The message is Jesus. And the more you study the Bible, the more you realize that. And the Bible gives us the historical context we need. The Bible gives us the information that we have to have. It does not tell us the whole story. The Bible gives us what we need to come to a saving knowledge of Him. And the Spirit, as we read the Bible and as we grow in our Christian lives, the Spirit helps us to um, to learn more and to grow in our knowledge of God. Eventually, we move from the, from the milk to the meat, right? That's what the Apostle Paul talked about. But... The Bible does not get into all these bizarre details. It doesn't dwell on 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 you know um, uh, on angels for any long period of time, for example. Uh, it, it doesn't go into all these crazy ideas like many of these other myths, uh, even such as the Epic of Gilgamesh does. It simply gives us the historical context we need, written in a historical way, and uh, it does, like Charles Spurgeon used to say, makes a beeline for the cross. The Bible is all about the message of the cross of Christ. Uh, in conclusion here, uh, in light of the failure of these uh, objections to explain the vast amount of data, it just simply appears, really, that the best explanation for the remarkable similarity found in many of these early cultural legends to the biblical account, which is written historically, is that they are mere echoes of the true history as recorded in God's Word. The same history, by the way, that was verified by Christ on many different occasions. You know, I'm glad that we have the truth. It's nice to have the truth. It's nice to wake up in the morning, not only to be living in the middle of the will of God, but also to live consistently, to know that what I believe about the world is consistent with reality, consistent with what is found in the world. It's not always pleasant. It's not always a bed of roses. Christian life is not some kind of uh, magic eraser for problems and circumstances that we face, but it is reality it is reality, and to live in God's world and then to deny God is to not live in reality it's to live in a uh, manufactured form of reality. Romans one talks about this really where we, we're just we're just we're denying the creature or denying the creator, excuse me, we're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And really, that's all idolatry is. We just find something else to worship. It doesn't have to be an actual idol or a statue or or some other rendering of God. Uh, Idolatry happens when we worship something contrary to God. And we do give our worship. Everybody, even an atheist, gives their worship to somebody. They might give it to themselves. They might give it to some mentor who has supposedly led them in this quest of reasoning towards atheism. They might go that route. But the reality is that everybody worships someone or something. There's a God in everybody's minds. But the only way to live consistently is if that God is the God of the Bible. And you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Hey, if you've been listening to this and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you reach out to our ministry visit slash y trust i'll link you in the show notes to that and go read it's just a real short uh, web page it kind of gives uh, just a quick apologetic why you should why you should believe this stuff a little bit of the history of the world and and, and why it matters uh, to you don't live one more day with this apathy towards religious things cs lewis the great writer and christian Philosopher uh, said it best in in many ways, but he said Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I think that's just a great, great saying. Because the reality of it is that we should not have this apathy towards the things of God. If there really is a God that it has profound implications on the way you view your life, the way you live your life, and, of course, upon your actual future. So consider Christ today. We all have these logical feelings, this innate knowledge of God, and what reminds me of this is this other quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, if I find in myself desires, and I'm loosely quoting this, okay, but it's one of my favorites. If I find in myself desires, which, which nothing in this world can can fulfill or seem to satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's true today. God made you, but you're made for another world. You're made for a world in which things are perfect, where things are right, where the lion and the wolf does lay down with the lamb. Where everything is perfect and there's no scorn, there's no hatred, there's no sin. Everybody dwelling in perfect love and perfect unity that's the reality that your heart desires and while we'll never have it on this earth it is a seed that has been planted inside of us and it is the expectation that we have the bible explains it in some ways as the eternal weight of glory in glory the eternal glory that we have is the ultimately the reality that all of our souls desire Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you. I want to say thank you for the opportunity to do this, for the opportunity to worship you and to study your word, your world, and to do it in worship and in reverence to you. Father, thank you for for all who may be listening. Thank you for those who are Christians. I pray that this will help strengthen their faith. And maybe for those who are unbelievers, I pray that you would help this uh, to to, uh, awaken them, Lord. Use your Holy Spirit to show them the truth of your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, thank you for joining me this week on this episode of the Creation Academy. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.